0: In 2022, we're kind of used to seeing trials play out in the media. As I'm recording this, my Twitter is blowing up with quote-unquote hot takes on Amber Heard v. Johnny Depp. But this spectacle of the televised trial, it's actually a pretty new phenomenon. Although trials like Ted Bundy's in 1979 got bits and pieces on TV, the first gavel-to-gavel coverage wasn't until 1991 with the debut of Court TV.
1: It was the first national network that was totally dedicated to showing you trials. I mean, that was it. We're going to take you inside courtrooms.
0: That's Vinny Politan. He's the lead anchor for Court TV and a former prosecutor.
1: We'll show you The beginning, from opening statements until the verdict, uh, onto the sentencing, you see and hear everything. And that was the new phenomena, and that was a game changer. And it created a new way to look at our system of justice.
0: All of a sudden, real tragedies involving real people all over the country were playing out in your living room.
1: With court TV cameras and microphones inside courtrooms across America, there have been certain iconic cases that have drawn people in,
0: and one of those iconic cases, the 1994 trial of Eric and Lyle Menendez.
2: Joseph Lyle Menendez, M-E-N-E-N-D-E-Z.
3: Mr. Menendez, are you related to Eric Galen
4: Menendez, who's seated here? He's my brother. And were your parents Mary Louise Menendez and Jose Menendez? Yes.
0: Lyle and Eric Menendez were tried and later convicted of the 1989 killing of their parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez. The family lived in a fancy mansion in Beverly Hills. The boys attended the top schools, drove sports cars, wore Rolex watches. Eric was a nationally ranked tennis player. It happened in a house
3: that used to belong to Elton John and Prince. It happened in a neighborhood where violence and murder are uncommon.
0: The brothers killed their parents in a brutal fashion, shooting them execution style at point blank range. Authorities initially thought it was done by the mob, but no, it wasn't done by an experienced killer, it was carried out by two brothers barely out of high school. Lyle was 21, Eric 18. The men, well-dressed and polite, captivated
1: viewers. These two young, rich kids, and then the sweaters that they were wearing. You know, it's the visual, right? These guys are on trial for murder. They, they, they killed their parents, what? Why would they do that? And that's the other part of it. That. that whole trial became about why. It wasn't really a it. Right? A lot of trials are murder mysteries, and the person said, no, I didn't, I didn't take that person's life. But here it was, well, why would they do it? And that became the fascination.
0: The big question was, why? What motivated them to do it? Many thought it was motivated by money. I mean, Eric had co-written a screenplay with a friend, and the premise was literally about wealthy kids who kill their parents for money. But that doesn't mean that's why he did it. The defense argued that they did it after decades-long sexual abuse at the hands of their father, Jose Menendez, and pent-up frustration at their mother, Kitty, who didn't protect them even when she knew.
1: And then, once you start to hear the evidence and you hear both sides of the story, then you've got to stay till the end. You have to be there for the verdict because you have to, well, how is this going to turn out?
0: In recent years, the case has been rehashed a lot including by this production company. Neon Hum made a podcast with Court TV all about it. Law & Order did a scripted show featuring Edie Falco as the brother's powerhouse defense attorney, Leslie Abramson. In those retellings, the sexual abuse is thoroughly examined. There's witnesses, decades of anecdotes between the two. But back in 1994, a lot of that was lost. Their alleged abuse was brushed over. The men weren't taken seriously as potential victims. They were mocked. SNL spoofed them.
4: Let me ask you once again.
2: Is it your testimony that you and your brother Eric, in fact, had nothing to do with the murder of your parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez?
1: That's correct.
2: Then can you tell the court who did murder your parents?
1: Our other two brothers, Danny Menendez and Jose Menendez Jr. (laughs) People obsessed over the
0: trial. Their whereabouts in the moments following the double homicide became tourist traps. People went to the Cheesecake Factory, where Eric and Lyle went the night of the killings, or Bagel Nosh, where Eric grabbed a bite before confessing to his therapist. The media dissected their every move, like Lyle spending $40,000 on clothes and buying a $64,000 Porsche, or Eric hiring a tennis coach to the tune of 50 grand a year. Is that what two men do who are mourning the loss of their parents? That seemed to be the question everyone was asking.
1: You went off on a spending spree. I mean, I would think that you would be in such grief that you wouldn't be able to buy Rolexes and invest in businesses. I and mean, Lyle didn't buy, buy anything without uh, first approving it with my uncle or my aunt.
0: Like Vinnie said, this trial and others shaped the way we look at criminal justice, for better or for worse. With the Menendez brothers, we wanted to know why they did it. With OJ Simpson, we wanted to know if he did it. With Amber and Johnny, we want to know who is telling the truth. And that's what this episode is all about. The consequences of consuming trials as entertainment. Since the Salem witch trials and Jim Crow era lynchings, this obsession with violence is truly anything but new but now armed with social media and real-time round-the-clock coverage we can chime in and not just at the water cooler we can do it publicly twitter is the new town square is it a new age mob mentality a modern witch hunt descending to poor taste tiktoks and dangerous doxing or is it just the 2022 version of who we have always been. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime.
2: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
3: This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations Knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We cannot talk about TV trials without talking about O.J. Simpson. And, I mean, we were skeptical about how to approach it because there is just so much to O.J., So we knew we had to call in an expert, but not just any expert, an expert who did an 18-episode series on OJ for the podcast, You're Wrong About. You probably know this voice.
4: My name is Sarah Marshall, and I make podcasts.
0: We wanted to know why she decided to re-examine the case in such depth. And if you haven't listened to it, I really recommend you pause this pod right now and add it to your downloads.
4: We all, like, as millennials, to some extent, grew up with it. Like, most millennials have some actual memory of the O.J. Simpson trial if they didn't, like, have their school day broken into to watch the verdict being read. And it's my first memory of the legal system.
0: Truly, what a time to be alive.
4: We carry around the fossils of this trial, like we know that if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. We know all the kind of little Seinfeld jokes and especially the Saturday Night Live parodies of the whole thing. It
0: became part of the zeitgeist. Even the judge, Lance Ito, was a celebrity. Jay Leno had a comedy sketch called The Dancing Itos on The Tonight Show which is exactly how it sounds, a bunch of Lance Itos simply getting down in their judicial robes.
4: And who danced, I think, to the Peter Gunn theme. And like, I don't know, it really speaks to this time when, like, a judge could be this famous and this known to people.
0: Part of the reason the Simpson saga gripped the nation was because it was long.
4: From his arrest to the end of the trial, which ended very controversially in his acquittal, 16 months passed. And during those 16 months, it was essentially all America could talk about. So even if you didn't
0: want to talk about OJ at happy hour or while you're passing the turkey at Thanksgiving, you kind of didn't have a choice. It's like if everyone you know decided to binge watch the same TV show for 16 consecutive months. The O.J. Simpson trial coverage was proof of concept that we were absolutely true crime obsessed. We couldn't just wait around for a long form in Texas Monthly or even our weekly dose of Dateline or 2020. We needed it daily, 24-7. Just shoot us up with this stuff. Now, I'm realizing that we're a few minutes into O.J., and maybe some of you listening have never heard of him. Maybe you're younger than me, shocker, and it's just a name you've heard mentioned by your geriatric millennial mother.
4: Hi, Gen Z. Everyone's scared of you, but I'm not. I think you're great. I think you should say that you can't come into work today because you're too sad. I've been doing that forever. Um, (laughs) So, essentially, in June of 1994, O.J. Simpson... Quickly was linked to the brutal murder—I really don't like the term brutal murder, but it really does apply here—of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman, who happened to drop by her house apparently at the time her murderer appeared to bring some reading glasses that Nicole's mother had left at a restaurant where he worked.
0: OJ Simpson was a former pro football player who at this point was more of an actor and pitch man and Naked Gun 33 and a 3rd and commercials for Hertz. He and Nicole had an abusive relationship that was well documented. There were photos of her injuries, 911 calls, and an arrest after OJ blew up at her one New Year's Eve. She was killed just a couple weeks after a failed reconciliation between the two. Her homicide was grisly. She was nearly decapitated. And there was a lot of evidence pointing in OJ's direction.
4: There was quite a lot of evidence that from the outset and upon later testing seemed very strongly to connect him to the crime scene, including the fact that some of his blood was there and the blood of the victims was all over his house.
0: It took a second for O.J. to be charged, and when it came time to book him, he surrendered in the most dramatic way possible. I thought I'd bring in our lead producer, Joanna Clay, to discuss this.
2: It's funny because when I think back on the Bronco chase, I think I forgot that it was like a three-hour event.
0: I mean, yeah, which is crazy, but let's start at the beginning.
2: Yeah, so... To take us back, it's June 17th, 1994. So five days after the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. And OJ has been formally charged with their murders.
0: And OJ at this point is supposed to turn himself in.
2: Right. His attorneys had negotiated this situation with the DA where it seemed they would just show up at Robert Kardashian's house and get him.
0: For those of you who uh, haven't put it together, Robert Kardashian is the father of the famed Kardashians, Kim, Courtney, Chloe, and Robert. But he was also on OJ's dream team of lawyers and only one of the many figures that are, you know, were popular then for this reason and are now popular for many different reasons, including Faye Resnick and Kris Jenner.
2: Yes, so OJ was at Robert Kardashian's house with the intention to surrender there to police. But at the last minute, OJ ducks out the back door of the house and jumps in a white Ford Bronco with his pal Al Cowlings. And Al Cowlings was someone he played football with at USC and with the Buffalo Bills.
0: So now you have O.J. on the run in his Bronco, the now infamous Bronco, and it's not, like, speeding off. It actually is going at sort of a slow speed along the freeway, and you look at the pictures, and there's just a trail of cop cars following him. It's so surreal, and one of the... I think earlier you asked me my first memory of this, and I was like, oh, I remember now the photo, the images of these cars uh, uh, on the highway. The
1: presumed uh, vehicle of... O.J. Simpson is still traveling very slowly northbound along the 5 freeway, uh, coming up again towards the 91 intersection. At that point, we'll just have to wait and see which way he's going to go. But uh...
2: It's so funny to hear like the news guys in the helicopter talking about it, because usually they're probably following like a high speed chase. But in this case, they were following O.J. going 35 miles per hour on the 405. And, and it's pretty crazy how quickly, you know, this isn't in the age of Twitter and smartphones, but people were quickly tuned in. Pretty soon after he had left Robert Kardashian's, you know, on the radio, people are hearing about this. And as they're driving on the freeway, they like see OJ and they start pulling over. And so there's people pulled over on the side of the freeway gathering on overpasses. Yeah, it's wild.
0: Also is wild. Not only that is that People aren't pulling over just to, you know, allow the cops to do their job. They're pulling over because they're rooting for O.J. It is wild because it's one of the earliest moments, I think, with celebrity trials where people are just rooting for the public figure because they are a public figure and had some sort of impact in their life outside of what they were charged with, I
2: think. Totally. And there was people on the side of the road holding signs that said, like, we love the juice, save the juice. And what sticks out to me when I was looking at these photos, I was like, did you just have poster board in your trunk and a Sharpie? Like, how did you so quickly (laughs) put that together? Because, again, the
1: the highway patrol does not want to intimidate, and I repeat, do not want to intimidate this vehicle into doing anything that uh, they really don't want him to do. And the main thing is to get him pulled over as safely as possible. While this
0: is all going on, his attorneys are truly scrambling. Bob Shapiro, one of his other attorneys, holds a press conference saying O.J. could be suicidal. Robert Kardashian reads a suicide note that he allegedly left behind.
1: Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life. Great friends. Please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person.
2: Yeah. So this is just me speculating, but I think maybe that's part of the reason cops were being cautious is they didn't know what OJ might do. His attorneys had said that in the days leading up to this moment, he had been depressed. They were worried about his mental state. So they're really wondering what OJ could do.
0: Yeah. And on top of that, everyone is watching. So I think the cops were on their best behavior.
2: Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, They knew that they were on television the whole time. So obviously that's going to impact your behavior, especially when you have the reputation that LAPD does and did. But yeah, 95 million people tuned in. It was basically like another Super Bowl Sunday. We
3: are told that Simpson surrendered to police just a few minutes ago. We are told he gave up after a long, tense standoff, a standoff that, as I say, ended in his own driveway with police officers who remained within shouting distance of his open car door.
2: So this two-hour chase ends at his Brentwood mansion. And
0: it ends at the mansion. It's part of this three-hour-long saga. And also that chase, being in that car for two hours, following him at such a slow speed, can I can only imagine
2: how truly relieved everyone was that it was over. So Al gets out, actually, and does go in the house. But OJ stays in the car, and he has a gun. There were reports that he had been, like, holding it to his head during the chase— So he was armed.
0: I mean, absolutely chaotic and absolutely dangerous, which does nothing to help
2: his cause. So apparently it took about an hour to coax him out, but they did. And I learned about from Sarah Marshall, and you're wrong about, that apparently it was dark out when this happened, too, and the TV helicopters weren't able to shine lights. So we don't have any images of him surrendering, of him getting cuffs put on him, But reports said that when he did surrender, he was clutching a framed family photo.
0: Yeah, and it's so fascinating because it is almost like, you know, I know there are other factors at play, but I wonder if even after this two-hour journey and then the hour to get him out of the car, if there were some other motives at play to make sure there's no actual footage of him surrendering.
2: Yeah, like you would think in any other situation, obviously, TV cameras are going to motivate you to act a certain way, but you would think an armed black man in America who just led cops on a chase, you would just think it would end a little bit differently.
0: Uh, OJ was is such a person, even now, he's sort of removed from his blackness. People don't see him as a black man. They see him as simply OJ Simpson, who has th- his main quality as being OJ Simpson.
2: Yeah, it's like his wealth, status, celebrity superseded everything. So the whole time during the chase, there was this desire to talk to his mother. So when he surrenders, before he's actually cuffed, they let him go inside the house, call his mom, use the bathroom, and drink a glass of juice. (laughs)
0: I mean, just the courtesy extended to this man who is allegedly committed a double homicide is crazy.
2: People watching, there was a lot of theories about why he decided to jump in the car without cowlings. Like, what was the plan? But what is interesting is when OJ finally did surrender and Al did, they found some stuff in the Bronco. They found a fake mustache, a goatee, a passport. Cowlings had taken out $9,000 in cash.
0: My God. That tells a larger story, obviously, than the chase ever could. It's like, even though he had planned to surrender at Robert Kardashian's house and then allegedly at the last minute decided to sneak out and allegedly had the suicide note, he was playing a long game. He was trying to get out of Dodge forever.
2: Yeah, like O.J., with his note, you know, told his kids he loved him and everything, but it seems like he was ready to start fresh in Mexico or something.
0: We'll dive into the aftermath of the Bronco chase, the trial, but most importantly, we'll talk about one of the key figures in the case that's often left out of the conversation. That's next.
4: but not on everything. I
0: I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back.
4: Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
3: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it.
0: What if you could become
2: stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and
3: breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin
2: Bieber love it.
3: I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body.
2: But there's also a dark side.
3: How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the
1: podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now.
0: For any person with a TV in the mid-90s, the Bronco chase and subsequent trial were historical moments. One of those, remember exactly where you were when it happened, JFK assassination, 9-11 type of event. The reason Sarah felt compelled to re-examine the trial is that a key character was missing from a lot of the coverage.
4: But Nicole has been completely lost to history. That was my pitch to people at the time. And this being a pre- Ryan Murphy American Crime Story Universe, they were like, who cares, <laughs> essentially, more, and much more nicely than that. But we're like, you know, there's like, there's not really an interest in revisiting stuff that happened during the 90s and talking about stuff that we didn't notice. So like, why bother? And I remained committed to the idea that people did want to hear about that.
0: The focus was always O.J. That's why SNL could make fun of him. All right, right this way, folks. This is the
2: master bedroom. Yeah, I decorated it myself. (laughs) Yeah, I was in here sleeping when the murders took place. Yeah, my proof? That's my bed.
0: (laughs) Because to remember Nicole Brown, her abuse, her mangled body, her two kids sleeping upstairs in the home behind her, to acknowledge that, that would be a buzzkill.
4: Nicole Brown Simpson was somebody who we really didn't get to hear speak for herself that much. It's something that's kind of easy to forget about now. But if someone is murdered today, then there will probably be a lot of footage of them that's perhaps very accessible to the public.
0: You see it with Gabby Petito and the sleuthing that happened around her existing social media accounts. People wanted to piece together who she was. But Sarah admits it's hard to know if having more of a public persona
4: would have helped Nicole. If there's a lot of media about you when you die, then like the public can see it and feel like they know you and feel like they are mourning you and they're attached to you and they sort of see the reality of who you were as a person or they can decide that you were an utter bitch whose husband should have killed you. So it just doesn't, it won't help you a lot of the time, which is really depressing. There were people who were
0: behind OJ even if he did kill her.
4: This kind of undercurrent of the idea of like, well, you know, murder is terrible, but she did have sex with other men after they were divorced. And he could see that happening because he was spying on her by peering in through her windows. And yet she continued. So in a way, doesn't it make sense? Wasn't he driven to it? Like there's a real undercurrent of that explicit or implicit idea in coverage at the time and in the kind of Moves that the defense team was making quite successfully.
0: As the trial progressed, public opinion started to turn on OJ.
4: The tide turned against him relatively gradually. Like at the outset, like things already looked pretty bad and yet it was possible to say like, well, like who wouldn't run if things looked that bad? Like who wouldn't hop in the Bronco and try and get out? And I think a lot of people from the beginning were like, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't really... Uh, looks bad for him. Then came the DNA.
0: OJ's DNA was found at Nicole's house. Nicole's blood was found on a sock in OJ's bedroom and in his bronco. The infamous gloves, one found at OJ's and the other glove at Nicole's, had blood from both the victims. Now today, that type of evidence would be damning. But the thing is, DNA was new, so the jury couldn't really parse what the experts were saying. They're like, parts per billion,
4: what? This is also kind of the first major nonfiction narrative that has made DNA something Americans are thinking about. It was kind of this in Jurassic Park, and one of those is a true story, and unfortunately, it's the murder trial one.
0: Remember, it's on the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. A criminal trial, unlike a civil trial, isn't about a preponderance of evidence. It's about eliminating the possibility that anyone else could have done it. And even though Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor, was a whole badass, she had to work with the case that the LAPD put together a case that, unfortunately, OJ's dream team of lawyers was able to poke holes in.
1: Mark Furman is a great detective and not a bad guy, but on the witness stand, he was caught lying. Now, it wasn't a lie about planting evidence, but if you're not telling the truth about one thing, the jury will not trust you about other things.
0: And once the defense cast doubt on the LAPD's investigation, they had planted a seed that was hard to take back.
1: It opened the door for the jury to think that, well, maybe they didn't frame him, but it's not completely unreasonable to think that they might have framed OJ Simpson. They may have tainted some of the evidence and, and planted some of that blood or planted a glove. And, you know, I don't trust that lead detective.
0: The DA figured the bloody gloves found at the scene would fit. Not knowing for sure turned out to be a colossal mistake, leading to one of the most iconic lines of the 20th century.
3: It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit.
4: I feel ultimately like if you were to look at the case against the LAPD, which is Part of the case that O.J. Simpson's defense is making and the case they're making directly to the jury. And if you look at what the LAPD has been up to for decades, particularly regarding how it has been protecting or not protecting and often framing people of color. Like, I don't think it's unreasonable to look at that trial and say, I don't trust the results. I think the LAPD faked the whole thing.
0: More than half of America tuned into the verdict. 150 million viewers. People stopped working to watch. President Bill Clinton left the Oval Office to catch it. It proved that TV trials were amazing television. And while opinions on the trial were contentious already, OJ's acquittal divided the nation, particularly along racial lines.
4: This is all happening in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict and the subsequent... What got called riots, I think that if we're gonna call January 6th an uprising and what happened in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict a riot, then just, I don't know, that seems wrong. So I would call that an uprising and then I would take the title away from January 6th and move it to LA in the early 90s out of scarcity.
0: In Rodney King's case, he had a rap sheet. He wasn't wealthy and when he led police on a pursuit after a routine traffic stop, he was severely beaten. Because footage was taken on a camcorder by someone in the neighborhood, they had evidence to charge the cops. But the acquittal of those officers, it shocked the nation. The same way we've been shocked by acquittals involving the beating or killing of black people by the hands of police in the last several years. So this is in the back of people's minds, especially in Los Angeles when the verdict is read. Black people saw the acquittal as a sign of progress against a scourge of police brutality. White people felt OJ used his wealth and celebrity to get off.
4: It's compelling to look at how delicately he was always treated by the LAPD. Like, I think what the trial itself revealed was that the LAPD (laughs) perhaps only treated one Black person with civility ever, and it was OJ Simpson.
0: The O.J. Simpson saga was a seminal moment in our pop culture history. It turned legal proceedings into true crime entertainment, pre-World Wide Web, but peak 24-hour news cycle.
4: I think it proved that there was a lot of money to be made in showing people legal proceedings. Like, we have this insatiable love of watching legal spectacle, and that we will sit through a lot of really dull stuff to get to the good part, which makes sense because that's how soap operas and reality shows also work.
0: It sparked uncomfortable conversations around racial disparities in America and the benefits of wealth and celebrity. It was easily a precursor to reality TV. I mean, it even starred a Kardashian.
4: But then also I think the backlash to the verdict helps create this idea that, oh, these criminals, they can get away with anything. You just hire a high-priced legal team and you can just get away with murder. And really it's like, no, this one guy, (laughs) this one guy this one time who happened to be like extremely wealthy, unbelievably well-liked to have like more public goodwill in the bank than almost anyone could have, certainly any black defendant, as of late, the Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard
0: saga is dominating Twitter, TV, TikTok, simply everywhere.
2: Welcome back. Johnny Depp's defamation trial against his ex-wife Amber Heard is playing out in real time on television and on social media, where millions are poring over the shocking details and taking sides.
0: And in some ways, it feels eerily reminiscent of OJ. It's a case of he said, she said. She alleges a physically and emotionally abusive marriage at the hands of Johnny Depp. He says she's lying. Dozens of his fans, most of them women, stand outside the Virginia courtroom rooting for him. They've flown as far as Los Angeles and they camp outside overnight.
3: They get their wristbands from sheriff's deputies right at 7 a.m. The first 100 guaranteed a spot in the courtroom.
2: So this is my wristband
0: to get in the courtroom. I am number one in line today. They think they know what happened. We think we know what happened.
1: We believe you,
0: Johnny, everyone believes you. Everyone believes you.
4: The attachment that you can have to somebody because you saw him on TV all those times somehow means that you know what kind of a husband he is. Like, that, it just, it's it doesn't work that way. Like, I'm sorry to say.
0: This case is unique and that there's a mountain of evidence to deal with. Medical records, photos, conversations with friends and family. And you have the alleged victim alive.
4: I just find it really disheartening that it seems like so many people are able to to go in with this attitude and watch her testify just being like she's making all of this up she's like engaged in some kind of like long-term long con to take Johnny Depp down for some reason and everything she does is somehow proof of that because and you know and I this has always been true like this isn't new information but I think something we like to believe about trials or about any kind of consumption of narrative or media around a crime, which is almost by definition something where there's some dispute about what actually happened and we have to figure out what did happen. We like to think we can figure it out. Just like OJ, we're quick to take sides. For the people who believe
0: her, which includes us, when we look on Twitter and see people scouring her old press interviews for injuries, it feels dark. I mean, Nicole Brown talked about the mountain of makeup she'd have on hand to cover up her
4: bruises. It's sad I even know that. I've seen, for example, a clip of, like, here you are on James Corden when you were supposed to be, you know, have a split lip or something. And I think there's the implication of, like, you weren't really injured, you couldn't have covered this up, but also, like, how could you be fine? Like, how could you be pretending to be fine if you weren't fine? And it's like... Do you know what being a woman is about? Like, that's 90% of it. It's just, like, pretending you're fine when you're not fine and also cleaning things. <laughs> Tell me about it.
0: Maybe a good but sad outcome of our obsession with these trials is it shows how subjective our system really is. Sure, a judge is impartial, but juries are carefully selected. Well, really eliminated. You remove the ones you don't think will support your side.
1: Each side wants a jury that will be more receptive to their case or less receptive to their opponent's case. So they're not looking for a fair and impartial jury. They're looking for a partial jury, someone who's partial to their case. They'll never say that, and I try to get them to admit that on my television show, uh, but they never do.
0: Maybe it's important to witness that, not to think we know all the facts, that we're the 13th juror. But to see how, in reality, these life-or-death decisions don't come down to fancy experts or attorneys. They come down to ordinary people. Twelve ordinary people. Now that sounds like a reality TV show, doesn't it? Next time on Spectacle, the show that set a tried and true template for true crime storytelling, Dateline, and it's King.
1: I'm Keith Morrison, and I'm a correspondent at Dateline NBC, have been for, what, 26 years now, something like that. And I've been around in television for over half a century, but that's me.
0: We'll dig into the essential ingredients that make a Dateline episode so good.
1: This is part of the struggle that you go through as a journalist. How close do I get to somebody? Do I become friendly with him in order for them to tell me everything? Or do I keep standoffish in order for me to keep my journalistic removed?
0: And we'll talk to the real people whose stories have ended up in Dateline podcasts, the news show, and adapted to scripted TV. The
3: comedy aspect of it, the people that you were laughing at in the show, acted more ridiculously in real life. Those are the people that aren't happy about the way they're being portrayed, and they should be happy because they're being portrayed better than they acted. In that respect, they deserve to be laughed at.
0: You won't wanna miss it. True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Katherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.